Welcome to the inaugural episode of season three of the Glass Frog Podcast. I am your co-host, Rebecca Casciano. And I am your co-host, Jen Puma. Uh, It's so great to have you guys with us here today. We have a great conversation lined up for you. We talk with Stephanie Singer, who works with Urban Arts Partnership right here in New York City. And Steph is the program director for a program called EASE, which stands for Everyday Arts for Special Education. And so EASE is a really interesting program because they are using the arts and integrating the arts into classroom learning to help students build social emotional skills and specifically students with special needs and where social emotional skills can be particularly challenging for that community. And we know that like social emotional skills are obviously like not only important for everyday life, but oftentimes they can be a gateway to academic learning and and helping students get more engaged in their own learning in the classroom, which can be like an added hurdle sometimes working with special needs communities. And so Stephanie and her team work with teachers throughout New York City to help bridge that gap and kind of bring the humanity into the classroom, as as we were talking about. Yeah, I should say from the start that I unfortunately was not able to join this conversation. So Jen and Steph, they talked, but I was bummed that I missed it because I knew Steph would be really interesting to talk to. And I really wanted to have her on the podcast because I think we haven't highlighted any programs out there um, that are supporting students with special needs. So students with autism or cognitive or physical disabilities, learning disabilities. And EASE does such a great job of doing that. It's not just something they do on the side. It's what they do and what they were designed to do. And so it was great you know, to be able to showcase a little bit about how they do that. Second, one of the things that we've learned a lot about in studying arts integration programs is that one of the biggest hurdles to using the arts in the classroom or integrating the arts in the classroom is that teachers often just don't feel comfortable doing it, not for lack of effort, but just because it's hard to ask teachers amidst Mm -hmm. everything else that they have to do to also start using the arts. And so they're, they're reticent. And in order to get teachers to start doing it comfortably, it takes a really crafty PD model. And EASE has a really strong PD model. And so we thought, again, that it'd be really great to kind of showcase their methodology for working with teachers. And lastly, as Jen alluded to at the start, you know, the program's theory of change really rests on the importance of social emotional skills, both the importance of building them for the sake of building social emotional competency among uh, students but also as a way of, you know, fostering a sense of belonging in the classroom and leadership, and also uh, eventually (laughs) supporting their academic learning. And so it's really great, again, to showcase or shine a light on a program that puts so much emphasis on social emotional learning. And in the wake of the pandemic and not being able to be in classrooms, EASE has put out a lot of resources for doing EASE at home. I'm mentioning that because there are some great visual aids out there that will show you what ease looks like in action and what the activities look like. And it might be really nice to just take a few minutes to reference those to kind of visualize what we're talking about when we have this conversation with Steph about the types of activities that are simple but really powerful. And also, if you have young ones at home, 
and you're looking for stuff to do, it might be a really good resource because these activities aren't just while, yes, they work for students with special needs, it, it, we've seen adults be equally as engaged in them and children really of, of all ages. So we are going to put up some links on our podcast page to Ease Resources. Um, I think they also actually have a YouTube channel. We'll, we'll put that up. And then um, like a new resource called Ease at Home for simple ways to integrate these activities into any homeschooling that you might be doing at this point. <laughs> so we'll stop talking about it and we will just get into it. And one quick thing before we do that, Rebecca, can you introduce us to this episode's unwitting sponsor? Sure. This episode's unwitting sponsor is a little bit controversial. I don't think everybody could get behind this one. But, you know, Jen and I always like to be in the forefront, uh, (laughs) sometimes sparking a little bit of controversy about what is and is not exciting. So, folks, this episode's unwitting sponsor is... Puppies. (laughs) Controversial, I know, I know. It's hard. Not everyone loves a puppy. I mean, but Jen and I, Jen and I are brave and we love dogs. So let me just say something real quick. Jen got a dog. My mouth, can I, I'm cutting you off. My mouth is agape right now by we love dogs, but keep talking, Rebecca. I know. It's a funny pronoun, which I'll explain in a second, the we. So Jen got a dog a few years ago. His name is Sammy. I'm not sure if we've ever talked about Sammy on on one of the shows. We We may have, but she could talk about Sammy in a second. My family, we got our first puppy two days ago. And until then, I'd never had a puppy. Uh, I'd never really been big on puppies. Uh, it's shameful to admit. But I am sold on, on puppies. Our little puppy is named Patton. He's a mini golden doodle. <laughs> I'll put a picture of him on the website. I got him for my kids, to be honest, because they, they've been bugging me for, for years now. Um, but he's, uh, I think my husband and I are, are even more excited about it than, than the kids are. So we'll, I'll, I'll put a picture up. You want, Jen, you want to put a plug in for Sammy? I will. Sammy is a little bit more of a mature dog at three <laughs> and a half years old, whopping, whopping three and a half. And Sammy is a rescue dog from the Dominican Republic originally. So he, he comes with a lot of baggage. Uh, but we love him like so much. Our hearts just like overflow and, I just, yeah, he's just the best. So they're real members of the family. So I'm, uh, I do get it that it is a little bit controversial, but once you've like, once you've gone there, I think it's really hard to go back, like, and go back through that door (laughs) once you've stepped through it. Yeah. Puppies aren't in style. Like how many people like puppies? I don't know. (laughs) You know, I actually will say that two months ago, I would have said, I wouldn't have gotten it. Maybe that's what makes it so exciting to me. I, I thought they were cute. Like, it's not that I didn't think they were cute. Of course I thought that. But I didn't get that their, their little personality. I don't know. I, I've been out of the, the puppy loop. I'm a little ashamed to say for a while. So, yeah, this isn't controversial at all. Everyone loves a puppy, <laughs> except for Rebecca two months ago. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, maybe we'll give some dog and puppy updates this season along the way. We may be giving those updates 
whether you like it or not, if if the little one starts barking in the background, he, he may be giving his own updates. It depends on uh, how I'm things actually, unfold. We're recording down here. I'm actually, I even need of an update right now. I want to run up there and see what he's doing, <laughs> what, what he's gotten into. All right. Well, guys, thank you for joining us. We're really excited to have you and we hope you'll enjoy the episode. Yep. All right. Let's get to it. So I'm just going to jump in and say thank you, Steph, and welcome to the Glass Frog Podcast. We really appreciate you chatting with us and kicking off our third season of conversations. And this is a special circumstance. This is a just acknowledging that it's a pandemic right now. And um, we're all dealing with some extra people at home and some extra at home constraints. So uh, I'm going to apologize in advance if you hear any weird noises on my end. <laughs> and don't stress out if that happens on your end too. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so this is exciting for us because we love the EASE program. We've known about the EASE program for a while through Urban Arts Partnership. And so this is really like a fun time for us to just talk about like the program and some of the history behind the program and just like get people acquainted with it because we've just found there to be like so much magic and like what's happening in the classroom and hopefully we can convey some of that in our conversation. Obviously a podcast, I was, I was thinking about this earlier that it's not the best medium for such a visual tactile program as ease. (laughs) But when we post this conversation, we're going to post some of the ease resources so that folks can look at those um, in addition to our conversation. And we're going to really like people pause, go look at the links on our homepage for this episode and check out Ease because it is, it's a great program and it'll make a lot, I think our conversation is going to make a lot more sense if you could see the program in action. So yeah. So maybe do you want to start by just telling folks a bit about Ease, um, like what the program goals are and how you guys go about achieving those goals through your program activities? Sure. Yeah, um, so EASE stands for Everyday Arts for Special Education, and the program has been around for over 10 years, but we've been federally funded for 10 years, and we are continuing to offer programming because of federal funding, which is really great. And Everyday Arts uh, for Special Education is a professional development program, so we work with classroom teachers, and primarily we work with uh, special education classroom teachers and also teachers who are working in integrated classroom settings, so those could be uh, inclusion classrooms. And the goal of these is really to bring simple arts-based strategies into teachers' daily practice. And so we really try to pare the arts down to their simplest form so that teachers can find ways to connect more effectively with their students and also to have their students connect more effectively with each other and to create kind of multiple entry points to learning for students. And so really the goals of EASE, I mean, we put a lot of things under the blanket of social emotional learning, but the goals of EASE when we really break it down are really about encouraging collaboration between students, promoting students as leaders in their classroom, 
you know, students having opportunities to explore and make choices and kind of demonstrate their understanding and communicate with each other in ways that typical instruction might not make available to them. And we found that the arts are really good at doing that and really good at creating that space for students. And so, yeah, I mean, how we do that as a PD program and kind of how we measure that impact. Um, we provide professional development to teachers in a number of different ways. We have teachers typically in a non-pandemic world. We have teachers come <laughs> physically into a space and learn our curriculum and activities and methodology, which involves all art forms, visual arts, theater, dance, music, and really kind of experience those activities and strategies for themselves so they can understand what the impact on their students might be and how it might shift the culture in their classroom. And then we have highly skilled, trained coaches who come into the classroom and work with teachers over a series of weeks to really get to know their students better, the learning goals, both academic and social emotional that are in those classrooms and kind of work with teachers to find ways to authentically integrate that practice into their classroom. So yeah, that's that's kind of who we are and, and how we do what we do. And then of course, we, we offer a lot of online support and resources and even more so now than we ever have. But that, you know, for at least the last four or five years, that's been a big part of our program as well is thinking about what does high touch PD offer and what does a sort of lower touch professional development model offer for teachers. And so that's kind of the world that we occupy. And um yeah, we, you know, we think we're pretty unique in the arts integration world and in that we're really focused kind of on the how of the arts and not so much the arts skills themselves, but what the practice of the arts can really do and lend itself to in the classroom for students. Yeah, and our exposure to ease is a little bit more recent in its history, relatively speaking, because if I remember correctly, I mean, ease goes back to like as early as 2001. I mean, I think it has like a like yeah. quite a bit of history, but I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about how the program has evolved since I don't really have a, a sense of maybe some of the early years of ease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even before 2010, um, kind of the practitioners who are now the coaches of ease were working really closely in a New York City non-geographic district we call District 75. And, you know, it's kind of a unique district to New York City for students who are classified as having moderate to severe disabilities. And particularly at that time, we were sort of designing and developing arts-based activities for students on the autism spectrum, you know, acknowledging that communication and socialization were a big part of their learning goal in the classroom and beyond the classroom, just in their daily lives. And that that's just so perfectly baked into all of the arts um, is that opportunity to connect with oneself and with one's peers. So that's kind of the, the origins of the program. And then because of that strong partnership and District 75 is kind of a lab site for these strategies, we were able to get a federal grant to build out the program in District 75 and really research and study and test these approaches and see if there was actually measurable impact on students' growth in, in those areas, um, in communication and socialization and some other specific social-emotional learning goals, um, and also to see if there wasn't a correlation to academic outcomes as well. So that's, that's kind of where we started. And then over time, we kind of found that ease is just good teaching and that these are just good practices that should be present in every classroom for every student and so much sometimes you learn so much sometimes from specialized classrooms as to what level of humanity needs to be present in every classroom and so 
we found that teachers were able to see the value in this practice, whether they were working with students who were classified as gen ed or in a special ed classroom. And so we started working in Los Angeles in inclusion classrooms. So that was kind of like the first evolution of the program to see if we couldn't find an impact in classrooms that serve sort of a broader range of students um, in terms of academic and social emotional learning needs. And we found that we did. Not only did we see student growth, but we found that teachers were really receptive to the practices. And then kind of building on that, we find ourselves today, now we are in community schools. We're working in what are called self-contained classrooms, but you know, these are students who could be taking standard academic assessment tests. They could have very specific but limited goals on, their, uh, on an IEP, you know, or very small behavioral goals that they're working toward. But Overall, these students are very integrated into the school community and often are moving between gen ed, inclusion, and, and those sort of specialized classroom environments. So now we've really kind of like broken the mold, I would say, mm-hmm. of that very narrow definition of what special education means. And we've even kind of talked about ease as everyday arts for student engagement or students everywhere, or, you know, what is it, what does that special education term really mean as we've seen the program kind of grow and expand and succeed outside of that? Yeah. That's, that's kind of the arc. Yeah, that is making me think of a question and because it, it tied to that statement that you said around what level of humanity needs to be present in every classroom. I love that. <laughs> I was like very touched by that. And I, a part of the program that I'm familiar with is called like the Ease Essential, which is like mm-hmm. K-N-O-W. Yeah which, let's see, I have my little cheat sheet because I always screw up what the K-N-O-W means, but it's um, the K stands for know what's important and let the rest go. Notice, use, and create learning opportunities. The O stands for one thing at a time. And the W stands for wait and see what happens. And I know that teachers have been really keen on that essential piece of the program. And so it reminded me of that, like what level of humanity needs to be present that like nothing in that, in that essential even has anything to do with the arts. Like (laughs) that that it's at its core, it's really about like listening to your students, understanding what they need and like responding in a very like authentic way to what they need. And so I was really curious, like, how did those four components, like, materialize as, like, the essential? Do you, do you have any history on that, or did it, <laughs> did it, is it just, did it appear <laughs> it one day? It just came to be one day. They were, like, on a tablet that we had. Right. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Jennifer Rain went up to a mountain. She's our curriculum designer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think as with all the activities and all of the approaches of ease, things kind of evolved organically because of a lot of different practitioners having input into the development of the program. But interestingly, the language is very non-arts oriented, but they very much do come from the practice of artists. Um, and so it, and it was a group of artists who came up with those ease essentials because not just from their own practice as artists, but also realizing what it means to engage in arts activities with in the classrooms and with the students that we work with. So, yeah, and there, you know, there is a little bit of a kind of a, a mindfulness and just like an overall philosophy to them that is farther reaching, I would say, than the arts and is what has made 
is very sustainable for teachers and that they don't feel like they have to do the activities we share with them or they have to be making art or doing a movement activity or any of those things to embody those principles in their practice. So, but yeah, I, I would say, you know, like the no, you know, all of these things, sort of this idea of of noticing in particular, you know, artists experiment and, and kind of look at, have used divergent thinking and look at materials and their environment differently and find opportunities for things to work together that perhaps might not be obvious right away to others. And so I think the end, that notice and create learning opportunities really comes very much from that kind of trial and error practice of an artist. You know, the O, this idea of one thing at a time, you know, that there's beauty in kind of seeing things evolve slowly and building and adding to that and not hurrying that process, but kind of working iteratively and slowly. And I think that's an artistic practice and process. But in the classroom, that often means like, we just simply can't take in that much, you know, and our students can't take in that much. And we expect way too much of each other in terms of what, what we can take in and, and then understand. Um, and the weight is, again, I would say that's part of that like inquiry mindset, you know, that if we step back and we pause and we exercise, curi- you know, curiosity and give more time for things to evolve, we find we have those aha moments. We discover things that we didn't know were possible. We find new ways of relating to one another. Um, and in the classroom that, you know, often manifests, I think that's a huge one for ease. We see that students often don't get that time that they need whether they're, you know, they're classified as having processing delays or not, everybody has a different need in terms of of waiting. And so we've seen students demonstrate incredible understanding and agency and decision-making ability when we just step back and stop doing everything for them and just wait. The know what's important and let the rest go is a kind of interesting one because I think that's always changing, you know, and and even in, in arts practice, yeah, what, what is kind of your focus? What are you, you know, what is the impact that you're hoping to have, I would say? You know, what, how do you want to connect and what is most important to being able to do that through your work? And not being bogged down, I guess, by all the other things that you could try to achieve, but really kind of distilling your focus down. And I don't know, as an artist, I found that that's really helpful. But in the classroom for teachers, that looks like we, us understanding that they cannot do everything. They cannot be all things for their students. Their students cannot do all things at once. It allows them to stop and think, what can I reasonably accomplish in this activity and in this moment? And what would success look like for my students in this? And, and let's work from there and let's try to focus on that. And then we can kind of build on that. So yeah, that's, you know, without having been part of, a, you know, fly on the wall of those early conversations when that philosophy came to be, that's how I have come to understand it, working with the team now for you know, seven years or so and that, you know, and, and we've come back to it and talked about it as well, you know, as artists and thought about what, what is inherently artistic about that. Um, mm-hmm. And human. And very, human. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm using, I'm relying on those principles every day, you know, <laughs> especially right now. And I know a lot of people are, and a lot of teachers have told us that those things have really come up for them because they are just, yeah, they're the classroom and the world around us, there's not so much of a barrier in ease, I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, how we conduct ourselves in one versus the other. I actually have another kind of, I don't know, background type question around the activities that you guys have developed over the last several years. Yeah. Because the activities are so wonderfully creative and they are just like elegant in their simplicity. Like to your earlier point that like, I think you had said like 
you're focusing on the how of the arts. And so there's something like just very elegant and simple about the activities, but yet very, very powerful for that reason. And so I'm wondering like what the process is for like developing activities and then like do you ever throw out activities that you're like, this just isn't working? Because like the repertoire of activities has definitely grown over the last several years. And so I'm wondering what that creative process is for coming up with activities and deciding what stays and maybe what goes or what needs to get tweaked. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think the key to all of the activities is that they should be a, like a scaffold big enough that many things can happen within them. And that they shouldn't be too prescriptive and limiting, but that there should be structure and parameters, you know, because everybody needs structure, you know, some degree of predictability and structure to be successful. And so I think, you know, activities that have, that have stuck and have had, you know, that we've gotten the most out of um, and we've been able to adapt the most, I think, are those that lend themselves to more types of learning, that lend themselves to more types of curriculum being, you know, dropped into them, but also lend themselves to more ways in which teachers can adapt them for their classroom and their students and their environment. So, you know, activities and and the process, I think, for testing that out, you know, I think every activity started, you know, one way and, and, and now doesn't look anything like how it started. And so I think the beauty of having a team of people collaborating is that everybody is in a way a researcher out in the field, trying out these things, testing them out, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work, acknowledging that nothing is perfect in its current form, and then coming back and us all being able to kind of like pool on that and decide as a group what we can change to make the activity more impactful. And also I would say to make the activity more effectively model our philosophy and our methodology, because at the end of the day, that's really the purpose of the activities. You know, we sort of say casually that we, we don't totally care if teachers go on and do, I mean, we do care because the art, you know, obviously they're wonderful activities and, and they encourage the use of the arts, but if teachers were able to extrapolate those act, from those activities, what makes a classroom environment successful and motivating and engaging for students and do that with something entirely their own, that would be wonderful. So we really want activities that focus on that and make the, the philosophy and the methodology really clear so that that's not lost in teachers just trying to replicate activities. It sounds like you're practicing know what's important and let the, let the rest go. <laughs> That's what that we sounds like to me. It, <laughs> practice it every day. Yeah, it's true. And right now we're doing a whole lot of that, you know, in, in the last couple of years, especially as we moved into community schools where we're mostly working with students, you know, who are cognitively older, we found that there's definitely some adjustments we need to make. And there are some new kinds of activities that we didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily the right activities to do in the classrooms we were working in before, but now they are like the key, you know, like they are the thing that really unlocks students that are otherwise really shut down and understandably so really shut down from learning. Like recently we integrated an activity. We've been talking a lot about like beats and using beats and and rhyme and rhythm in classrooms, but you know, for students to be able to kind of keep up with that and to be able to contribute to that, puts a certain degree of expectation on the students. But in a lot of the classrooms right now, that's, that was such an, an obvious need. But teachers were so uncomfortable being able to come up with those beats and facilitate those activities on their own. So we pre-recorded sounds that are easy for teachers to use and, and have seen that just become like a tremendously impactful strategy in the classroom. 
you know, other activities we've come up with, they start with a need. You know, we notice students in these classrooms don't feel safe. They do not feel safe in their classroom. They don't feel safe in their school. They feel, you know, they've been made to feel like they are wrong. And so they are coming into the classroom from that point, you know, of feeling like anything they do is likely to be a failure. So we had to think about activities that set the bar for failure really, really low because a lot of these students just really need to feel good about themselves and develop a better, a more positive self-image. And so, so a lot of the activities we're developing now are really from that need, an identified need that we weren't necessarily making explicit or, full, or filling through the activities that we'd already developed. So we've been thinking about like, how do the arts do that? How do the arts, you know, are there sensory activities alone, you know, activities, calming activities that help students to take some of the pressure of socializing off that allow them to feel successful? Are there whole group activities that are community building and ritual oriented Mm-hmm. but also don't allow for room for, you know, failure that we can kind of integrate. So, yeah, I would say everything started with an identified need and then thinking about what what out of all of our combined practice would best serve that need. You mentioned a few moments ago teachers' comfort with, say, coming up with beats, and it made me think that there are probably instances where you are – because this is a PD program and because the word arts is in there, you come up against a certain level of resistance with some teachers that have either a lack of confidence for themselves of like, I don't quote finger, you know, air quotes do the arts. I'm not artistic or different, but also a a different type of barrier would be, well, I don't know how this helps me accomplish my goals in the classroom or the academic standards that I'm being held to and therefore I have to hold my students to. And so I'm kind of curious like how you're able to get buy-in from teachers who might have those roadblocks. And the, the approach might be different depending on the type of roadblock, you know, like low confidence is different than I don't think this is going to do anything for my students. They could be confident, like be just fine with their own skills, but be, you know, reticent to buy in for that reason that it's not promoting their goals and objectives. So what have you seen over the last few years work with teachers? I think there's a few things. I mean, in terms of teachers not feeling like artists, um, I think that's a huge barrier to integrating the arts for a lot of programs because... Mm -hmm you know, the production level is usually very high, you know, and um, the art skills are usually balanced with equal value as the academic skills. And so teachers do feel a certain pressure to have a certain degree of competency in that. They, teachers always want to be competent in what they're doing with their students. And so I don't think anything would shut anyone down more than feeling like you're asking them to do something that they do not feel competent in. And so I think that's one of the ways in which ease has different, you know, kind of, differentiated itself is that we've been okay to actually, I don't want to say dilute the arts, but really simplify the arts. Like we've been okay to, you know, even though as professional artists creating a program to think about like, what is the simplest entry point for a teacher to this art form too, you know, like what would be the easiest thing for a teacher to do that's theater based or music based if they have no knowledge of music composition or no knowledge or not comfortable using their bodies physically in the classroom, you know? And so 
that's always been the, the goal of ease is to not just make these things accessible for students, but also to make them accessible for teachers. Um, because if teachers can model comfort, then students are going to be more comfortable as well. So that's one way we've done is just that these activities are just like quite simple, but sometimes the art is so discreet, you might not even know that you're doing an arts thing. And then it's always exciting, I think, for teachers to realize that they are, you know, and we have a go and stop activity that's just a body percussion activity. But, you know, that comes from a musician's practice of acknowledging, like, how do we compose music and what it means to create a composition with pauses. And, you know, and so it, it comes from the language of music, but it's it's conveyed to teachers in a way that, it oh, it just requires me to hold these signs and ask my students to make sounds, you know, that we come up with together or simple sounds that we can all make. So, yeah, so I think that that's teachers almost immediately when they when they come to the workshops realize that, that they can do these things and they're simple. And a lot of them look and, act and feel more like games, you know, and so I think that also kind of takes the pressure off, you know, that teachers are used to playing games with their students, you know, they're used to the structure of games because they adhere to some of the rules that they're trying to develop in their students. And so it's not this like open-ended arts experience that I think can also give teachers a lot of anxiety of like, oh, what's going to happen if I just let my kids, you know, do this art experience for a whole period with no structure, you know? So... Yeah, and then teachers who are resistant, I mean, yeah, that's definitely a different challenge, you know, and one that, like, we have to be super respectful of and sensitive to, which is they have so much pressure on them. Yeah, the pressure that's on them is often so much that it makes it really, really difficult, next to impossible sometimes, for them to have those connections that they want to have with their students. So I think we have to approach those teachers differently, and and really let them see that we're not, that this is not an alternate curriculum. We're not saying do this on top of that. We're saying, what do you need to do? And you can drop it in this and we'll show you how. So we try to integrate with teachers curriculum as soon as we can. And we, we make it really clear and we're trying to be even more clear now in the program that, yeah, this is not meant to take place of something. You know, whatever math curriculum you're working on is your math curriculum. This is just a container for that. Um, and you could do it with a worksheet or you could do it with this, but we can get you to the same outcomes. We're just changing the physical structure of it. So that, you know, with modeling and with seeing the impact with their students, that, that shift usually starts to happen with those teachers. What kinds of data, just like talking like buckets or category, do you collect about um, teacher growth since this is like a PD program? what are some of the metrics that you look at to see if teachers are growing in the areas that you want them to? So we look at teachers' comfort level in the different art forms. So we look at how comfortable they are in using the arts in their classroom to deliver academic content. And we, we kind of survey them at the beginning to understand what level of comfort they have with using arts integration as a strategy. And then over the course of the year, we kind of survey them to see that level of comfort broken down also by art form. So we can sort of see where teachers are leaning in terms of art form that's more comfortable for them to integrate. So that's, that's one measure. And then we also ask teachers to report on student growth. So our, our teachers seeing that their students are having, the students are making progress towards, we look at their IEP goals in particular, but our students making growth towards select academic or behavioral goals because of these activities. Because if teachers are reporting that students are making growth towards the thing that teachers are trying to get students to make growth towards, 
we can then assume that teachers are finding that useful. And so that's typically how we've reported on, you know, just in terms of getting teacher feedback. Mm -hmm. We also ask them about their level of comfort working with a teaching artist and how they feel with that relationship and having that level of collaboration and partnership with someone in their classroom. And um, the research team also conducts observations and, and interviews with teachers to kind of you know, get a, a better, more full picture of what those relationships between coach and teacher look like in the classroom and get some of that anecdotal evidence from teachers that, that they're seeing the relevance and use of the program. Mm-hmm. Like a kind of tangential, uh, I'm going to go in like a little bit different direction now to talk a bit more about students because you brought up the IEPs and obviously like... <laughs> with the population that you're dealing with, like each student has their own like customized learning goals. They have their own customized instructional plan. And that is layered on top of their disability. And the fact that even if you have say a class of autistic children, you're not going to get the same type of autistic child every single time. Like even within that header, there's going to be a lot of variability. And so I'm just thinking about all of the variability that you're dealing with in terms of like a classroom that might have a child with different types of motor skill issues that might have cognitive delays that might have autism. And then within that, each student that might have the same diagnosis has their own variability, as I mentioned. And then within that, they each have their own learning plan. So like there's these like this funnel of (laughs) variability that I'm trying to describe that I described in like an inverse way, but that's, (laughs) that's what's happening. And so I have wondered like how you've been able to home in on where ease can have the most impact on students in terms of their own growth, because you're, you have all of this variability. Can you talk a little bit about the process over the years of knowing where ease can like have its the biggest bang for its buck in terms of student growth. Yeah, I mean, I think if we go back to like the early iterations of Ease and the students that Ease was initially working with, which I think is just as is relevant as much as it was then as it is now, was that you know a lot of those students were very much in their own world, and you know, we're getting a lot of one-on-one support or we're maybe not getting enough one-on-one support, but that it was hard to know what, there was a process of kind of discovering what would bring them out and bring them up into the world around them to feel comfortable or even to just develop that muscle, that skill to be present in that environment and to have an interaction with somebody a lot of those students were in classrooms with five other kids that they rarely interacted with and interacted probably more with the teacher or their paraprofessional. So, so initially it was just really like about that. It was like about giving students a lot of different ways, a lot of different kind of languages through which they could communicate and tell us what they liked and what they understood and, and how they wanted to connect in that space. So you know, having students make simple choices and, 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 you know, with a material was a way of eliciting some response and some engagement, getting students to, you know, shaking things up in the classroom, getting students to move and set up the space was a way of discovering if students were choosing to not be involved or if they just needed more time and an impetus to be involved. And so I think it's very much the same now with the students we work with. I think like 
bang for your buck with ease. And I don't, I hate to distill it down to the word engagement because there's just definitely a better word. But I think students need to be, everybody needs to be like, <laughs> kind of invited in to a, a space and invited in in a way that feels motivating and comfortable and safe. And I think sometimes we just assume because students are in our classroom that they want to be there or not even that they want to be there, but that they're just going to turn up because they're there. And I think, you know, everybody needs to kind of be drawn in and needs to feel connected to do that. So I think, you know, it, it's very simplest. I think Ease does that. I think it draws students in. I think it kind of shifts the energy and the dynamic in the room in a way that I think students notice and it makes them feel a little bit more curious and invested to learn and to interact with each other. And so from that point on, it can go a long way, you know, because then once you have students, you have their focus and their attention and their interest, then you can start to build some of these other things. Then you can start to do a lot of the other things that Ease does really tremendously well, you know, which is encourage students to lead and, you know, positively lead and students to, you know, exercise impulse control where that could be difficult for them. But I think that's like the first step. And I think I've always seen Ease as, as an invitation. We never force anybody to do anything. You know, one of our coaches, Erica, does this so beautifully, but, you know, like a perfect example of this is she'll set up a, a circle of chairs for students and we often will have a student who's like, absolutely not. I'm not joining you. I don't want to do this. Either they don't engage in anything and maybe nonverbal or just are not communicating in general. Or we have students who are just like, I fully understand what you're doing and I don't want anything to do with it because, you know, screw this and every activity we do in the classroom. But we leave a chair for them. And we always, and Erica always does that. And we always, almost always see students eventually, like they are watching, they are seeing something different happening, they're seeing the energy shift with their peers. And then they gradually, like maybe they participate from their corner of the classroom and then they eventually get up and move into the chair. Like it, I've seen it happen so many times. So that's always told me that I think ease is really, is really inviting. Also to adults, you know, like it's an invitation for all the adults in the room to participate, which we get plenty of pushback on that. But, <laughs> you know, I think we... Yeah, I think just this idea that no one is forcing you or expecting that you're going to turn up in this way, but we are curious about you and we are inviting you to turn up in this way seems to go a really long way with ease. Um, mm -hmm. I can think of how many times I've been physically present somewhere, but it doesn't mean that I'm engaged or been yeah. in, felt invited into, you know, whatever is taking place. It's happening maybe at me or to me, but not with me. And so... Yeah. I can think of tons of examples of that just as an adult. So that's I would just add to that. Yeah. yeah, it is. And I would just add to that that part of that is also that we ask students and invite students to set up the space themselves. We have mm. students make the materials that they are going to learn with. There's a tremendous amount of ownership in that, you know, when they are used to things being done and set up for them in a way that they may, they may or may not like. But when they're asked to kind of organize their own environment, and be the participant in setting that up and the participant in creating the manipulative or the tool that they're then going to use to relate to one another. That's also part of that like invitation and that critical engagement piece, for mm -hmm. lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. How has Ease been modifying or not modifying as you've entered into inclusion classrooms where you have maybe 
a larger population of general education students and a smaller population of special education students. And so this program has really been built around the special education part, but now you're working with a more generalizable population. Um, so can you talk to me about how the program has evolved in that regard? Yeah, I think the evolution of the program in those types of classrooms, I think, is acknowledging that it is every student in that classroom that benefits from what we are doing. Yes, we are trying to ensure that certain students are better integrated into the learning environment. And we're trying to make sure that the learning environment is, is set up in a way that they have more access to the learning and can build more positive relationships with their peers. But we're also aware that every student in those classrooms also needs those things and benefits from those things and benefits from the classroom environment shifting. So I don't know, I feel like it's been nice to be part of flipping that script, I think a little bit in those classrooms around who we're trying to accommodate there. You know, there's so much this idea that we're, oh, everything's being changed for these students, you know, mm -hmm. because they've been put in this classroom and they have these needs. And, and I don't know, I think the beauty of being in those classrooms for the last few years has been seeing that it's shifting the energy for everyone for the better. And the teachers are actually acknowledging that and realizing that the benefits are cut across all students in those classrooms. And it's actually an opportunity where those classrooms are typically quite segregated. You know, students mm -hmm. will often be in their own centers for learning based on whatever academic content they're working on. There's very little time students might come back together as a whole group and feel, you know, a certain commonality and connection that, that we're creating that space, which is really beneficial for everybody. But as far as adapting, I mean, there are definitely like logistical adaptations. There are usually a lot more students in those classrooms. The space is limited to do a lot of the things that Ease has often been able to do in the small classrooms that we've worked with. And when you have so many students and you're trying to do things as a whole group, you really have to deal with how much waiting you're asking of students and how much turn taking can be a challenge. And are we keeping things moving and engaging enough that we aren't losing some of the students in those classrooms. So we've had to think a lot about what kinds of art forms, what kinds of activities work better in those settings and the activities that we're used to doing that have worked on a smaller setting. In a smaller setting, what do we have to do to make them more engaging for a larger group of students? And one of the things like that's really come up in those classrooms is that teachers will often go to competition to make things like fun and engaging because you're trying to keep all these students kind of motivated and competing against one another is often something that we go to to motivate but we really are pretty fiercely against that you know only because that, that's you know that's a zero-sum game and if you win I lose and there's nothing that is going to shut a student down more than this idea that they are a loser mm -hmm. so we've had to come up with ways of like creating challenge without competition in those classrooms so how do arts how can you use an arts activity and build challenge into it so that students feel engaged and enticed and you're not losing 30 kids, but you're not falling into the typical traps. I think that we sometimes fall into when we're trying to engage that many students in a social activity. So that's also been a, a kind of a shift in the program. That just sounds like something we need more of in general, like less competition and more collaboration because yeah. how you infuse that into, or infusing that into learning is then like how students go out into the world and live and operate. So it, it really struck me when you said that, that it made me think like, yes, like more collaboration, like the, the fact that the knee jerk reaction is to go to competition is, is I was like disheartened 
by that. And my one other thought when you were talking about kind of like what's good for one population can be good for multiple populations reminded me of that idea of the curb cuts. Have you heard mm-hmm. about? Yeah, yeah. Where like you, you make an accommodation, but it is actually then ends up benefiting a larger portion of the population. So curb cuts, meaning a wheelchair, you know, originally came about because a wheelchair could roll from the sidewalk into the street, cross the street and get back on the sidewalk without like just facilitate that movement around a city. And then it benefits moms with strollers. It benefits people with bikers. It benefits Mm -hmm. someone with a walker, you know, and there's tons of accommodations like that around like universal design. That's like what's good for one is actually good for all. And that just seems like something we need so much more of right now. (laughs) You know, again, collaboration, what's good for one is good for everybody because then you thrive together. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, there are needs that are more obvious, you know, more explicit that then we use to distinguish those students or individuals from everybody else because it's such a, it seems so obvious relative to what we deem normal or we're used to seeing in our daily lives. But everybody is on some spectrum of those things. Everybody is, you know, to your point with curb cuts, there are ways in which so many people actually would benefit and desire accommodations and sensitivity to, you know, the ways in which we have to lead our lives differently and that are not visible and are not seen. And a lot of the students in the classrooms we're in don't actually visibly demonstrate a lot. And, you know, and, and I think that that's also part of the struggle is that they are then the compassion and the empathy is so low for those students because they don't seem to visibly have a need. And so it's easy to just say, it's not there. And so, yeah, I think that's, again, like, I feel like I've learned so much from working in a special education setting and that it, it teaches you about everything. Actually, it teaches you about <laughs> what everybody needs and just that those things seem to get lost in other spaces or we other those populations by virtue of that need, as opposed to acknowledging it as an opportunity to reassess what all of our needs are. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle, but we're trying to shift that in our own small way um, in these classrooms and in these schools is part of what we're trying to do. I want to be respectful of your time and I, I know we don't have too much time left, but I wanted to just, as we wrap up, acknowledge what is going on with the pandemic and you know, when I think about ease, I think about how tactile it is, how important social interaction is for ease, where even like the goals of certain activities can be around making eye contact, seeing one another. And in the world that we're living in right now, that's not possible. And so how, if at all, and this is obviously very early on, so you could say, we don't know, and that's totally fine, but how have you guys started to think about how the program might have to be adapted to a virtual environment if this social distancing continues into the next school year? Yeah, that's a big question we're grappling with right now. We're thinking about what of our practice is, is translatable in a remote learning environment and actually finding that a lot of it is, especially because of these principles that are not tied to anything specific and can be applied very universally, that we're able to kind of lean into that a little bit more than we are trying to, you know, exactly replicate our 
curriculum and activities and approach. And I think we're learning right now by the limited interactions we've had with teachers and, you know, their classrooms at home that we need to start thinking about the home as a valuable, valid space for learning. You know, what what learning happens every day in the home environment, what opportunities for learning are available with very little resources. You know, we're super aware of the inequities of access to technology and resources that most of the schools we work with have. So I think we're a pretty limited technology program. We always have been. <laughs> um, we keep it pretty simple. Um, and that's actually kind of proven to be a really good thing because we can't even in this world where we're all remote assume that people are going to have a consistent connection, uh, are going to have a camera, are going to have a laptop, are going to have good sound. So we're very much used to navigating that space of having very little and making the most with very little. And so I think right now we're just, yeah, thinking about what, what we can expect of teachers, what would PD look like if we are not with them physically, and if we have limited time with them and their students, where can we be most useful you know, and we're also totally learning ourselves and navigating what it means to build social emotional learning skills through Zoom. <laughs> what does it mean to like have a meaningful connection and social interaction with somebody like this or to take turns or wait or focus on the task at hand, all of those things. Yeah, we have to shift our expectations of what those things look like, I think, in this environment. So yeah, we're very much figuring it out. We've developed a lot of resources in the last few months. We've made quite a lot of videos for parents and families at home. We're, yeah, successfully interacting with teachers when we can and joining their classrooms online and finding that especially a lot of the movement things we do are really great for keeping kids engaged and not wandering off, you know, away from the screen or tuning out. So, yeah, it's we're expecting that we will be in that environment next year to some degree, if not completely. So, yeah, we're making the shift now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where can folks learn more about Ease? I know we're going to put up a link. Basically, anything you mention here, we will make sure is available on our page so that folks can access it easily. Yeah. They can go to urbanarts.org to the website and find our program and more information about the program that way. We have our own sort of like satellite site that can be accessed through urbanarts.org, which is ease.urbanarts.org. And there you'll find a lot of videos, um, courses you can take to sort of go through different modules of Ease activities, our whole Ease at Home series, video series, and a bunch of other stuff that teachers have contributed um, in terms of curricular integration. So yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff you can find there. Awesome. And that's the ease at urbanarts.org. That's ease.urbanarts.org. Yep. Got it. Mm-hmm. I'll definitely put that up. Do you have like any other personal tweeting on arts and arts integration that, that you share? I say this with full disclosure oh. that I have no, I have none. I have zero bagels. So. I'm simply <laughs> not present on Twitter. <laughs> Never have been. No, yeah. We, let's see, social media-wise, Urban Arts does have Facebook and Instagram account that you can visit that would have things related to all programs at Urban Arts. 
And yeah, that's probably the best social media outlet for anything. We do have a YouTube channel that you'll find when you link all the videos. So videos get posted up there by me. Oh, cool. Well, YouTube, that's pretty good. I always like to give some space at the end for people to offer up their different ways to connect with them. And I I chuckle to myself every time because, and Rebecca as well, is just like, we have no presence. Like, no. <laughs> no. You'll never find me. You'll never find Exactly. I, in fact, take great pains to be not findable. <laughs> exactly. Um, you email me. You can old-fashioned email me if you want to talk more about any of these things. <laughs> yeah. Well, we really, really appreciate that you've taken the time out to talk about Ease. And it's just, I think, a program that is, as you said at the outset, it is very unique for what you, you know, the population you're serving and the way that you ser- that you approach the work it is, I, I haven't seen anything like it. And so we're hopeful that folks can really like get a sense of that through our conversation, get a sense of the humanity that the program brings to the classroom, which is incredibly important as ever. And uh, they'll get to see that in action with the resources that you mentioned uh, in the YouTube channel. So folks should definitely check it out. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Say bitte. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. No problem. It's been a real joy to talk about all this. And um, thank you for making the space for it. Well, we will see you on the other side. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Thanks so much, Jen. <laughs> Well, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for joining this conversation with Stephanie Singer. We will be back in a couple of weeks on, uh, let's see, Monday, August 3rd. And you will have to join us then to see who our guests will be that day. But I promise you, it's going to be a great conversation. Thank you so much again for listening. And we hope you stay well. See you soon.